daughter if you guys didn't know that. So thank you guys and all the dads in the band. Way to go. Um, okay, so we're, we're doing this series through Exodus, and, uh, you know, it, it dawned on me it's taking forever. Um, and then to make matters worse, <laughs> uh, I got I got to the I got to the Ten Commandments and I'm I'm stuck I can't I can't go I'm like I, I got to spend a little time here so when when are we gonna leave Mount Sinai I'm not sure and and today might not feel like a like a well packaged sermon or a well packaged speech it might feel like I'm meandering through these um, but here's the here's the reason. Um, and I, I didn't finish my email. I have a half-sent half email to you in my outgoing box. But here's what my email was going to be. How many of you right now, the email is going to say, stop, put down this email, get a pen, and write down the Ten Commandments? And then we were going to take a survey and see how many people actually knew the Ten Commandments. And I, I already kind of know the answer because it's kind of known out there. It's not real high. And, you know, we'll grab a bunch, we'll grab a few. And um, so what I want to talk about for today is, I, I, I started last week, what should we do with the Ten Commandments? And last week ended up just being a really long introduction. And today I want to focus on what, what did Jesus do with the Ten Commandments? So that's what we're going to talk about. Fair enough? Um, because I think a lot of times, so you have... You have what I call modern people who are like, they're, they're all over it. They're over the whole God, Jesus, Bible thing, you know, and they just think it's all nonsense. And so they've discarded for all, that, that's irrelevant to modern thinking people. And they make their own rules based on what, I don't know exactly, but that's, that's, one, that's one option, not the one I recommend, but it's out there. Clearly it's out there if you live and breathe and have a job. Have you seen this option? Okay, I, okay, that's what a lot of people are doing. Okay, then there's the option. People say, "Well, I'm a Christian, so because I'm a Christian, none of that matters to me." That's an option, though, as we will see, probably not the one that Jesus took. And so, I guess if we line ourselves up, saying Jesus would be our our leader, um, our savior, uh, our role model, maybe the thing to do is to take a look at the Ten Commandments again, but through his eyes. Fair enough? So that's what we're going to do today. Um, happy Father's Day. I'm coming back to you, Dad. All right, I'm coming back to you. Don't worry. Um, Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words. Exodus 20, verse 1. God spoke all these words. Now here, they are not called commandments, and I think you should note that. When they're introduced, they aren't called, here are the Ten Commandments. They're called words. We need to just stop and talk about that for a minute. What does that mean? These ten words. God spoke these words. They were, they were thought of as instructions. They were thought of as um, guidance. And so... Thinking of, as, thinking of them as commands is fine because they are called commands later, but sometimes it misses how they're actually introduced. And I think that makes a difference because if you thought of these in a different category for a minute, 
Uh, they also deserve the title commands. I'm not going away from that. But if you thought of these differently for a minute, like 10 secrets, 10 insights for an amazing life, like something that you would see on a headline, 10 secrets to a satisfying uh, life. I'm like, oh, you know, they call that in the industry, don't they call that clickbait in the industry? So it's clickbait right at the top. The first line is there's these, these words, these statements. And if you thought of them that way, secrets, insights, you might click and you might then explore these. And they go like this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. We talked about that, that we're here on somebody else's dime. First and most wise thing you learn in life, you're here on someone else's dime. You're not a self-made person. As wonderful as you are, somebody brought you here. There's a reason to listen to these because the person that brought you here, these laws, you can also think of them like laws, how we think of the laws of gravity. You know, you could argue with the laws of gravity. Evidently, I tried to do that, and I now have two broken ribs. You just, you pay attention to them. They just are. And I just think if we could recategorize these in our mind as like, you know, it's, I'll give you another example. Uh, the other day, uh, Charlie wanted to go to the park, and she said, Dad, let's, let's walk to the park. And the reason she wanted to walk to the park was because there was a big bouncy house like a few doors down, and I think she thought if I get close enough to that bouncy house, I might end up in it. And anyway, we walked by, and we we're going towards the park, and I said to her, I go, honey, you don't have the right shoes on for the park. White patent leather shoes with no socks. We don't usually wear to the park. Now, if I'm driving there, I might, but she wanted to walk there, and, then, and she just said, Dad, I'm fine. No, I want to, no, I want to wear these, no. Fine. So we start walking to the park. It's a long way to the park. And we start getting there. Are you okay? Are your feet okay? Because I want to, I want I know we're going to turn around. I want to turn around early. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? I, I know we're turning around. I just want to turn around early. So I keep asking her, can, can we turn around? No, I'm good. I'm fine, Dad. They're fine. It's skipping. And I'm, she's trying to prove to me how wonderful they are. And we go further and further and further. And now we're halfway there. And she says, Dad, my feet hurt. No kidding, your feet hurt. You're trying to come up against the law of wearing patent leather shoes without socks and high heels as you walk to the park. That's a law. It's the 11th commandment. Thou shalt not. And so we... Now, what I also know is pretty soon she's going to want me to what? Did I mention I have two broken ribs? So <laughs> I'm saying there, all right, honey... If your feet hurt, we got to turn around right now. She goes, no, I don't want to turn around. <laughs> Does anybody know where this is going? There's a train wreck ahead here. And here's the thing that happens every single time you put yourself up against a law. The law is not like a random idea that God like, is in heaven. It's like, hmm, what could we do to make it miserable for those cats? Let's come up with a big ten. But I mean, I think somehow people think of these things, but there, there's laws. And so remember, I gave you some homework. Did anybody come last week? 
six of you. Um, so last week I gave you some homework, and this is what I said. Take the time to personalize these because it'll do something for you. Like, I'm not going to ask because I'll be embarrassed at how few of you did, but I'll give you a couple of mine. First one. So, and the first commandment is, verse three, you shall have no other gods before me. So one of the things that I think we do today is we read through these, we kind of nod. Yep, that's a good one. That's a good one. I'm not going to argue that one. That's a good one. And what do we do? We give ourselves a check mark. Done. I got to go to the next verse. That was so easy. And have we thought through, honestly, in your entire life, have you ever thought through that one commandment at all? Of course I do that one, Bob. Check. I mean, I would even challenge you to just stop and do one commandment, just to do that one and think about, well, what would that mean for me today? Now, by the way, uh, the, the, this crowd here that we're reading about in Exodus, they, they don't even wait till Moses is off the mountain getting all the commandments before they're breaking them. I think they're there because not only does God care about us and want the best for us, but I think he knows our propensity to do things that hurt us. I want the best for Charlie. I really don't want blisters on her feet, but I also know the propensity of Charlie to want to wear patent leather shoes without socks. I know her tendencies. I think God knows our tendencies. Here's what, I, here's what I came up with. It's a work in progress, so don't judge me. Um, but, but I'm trying to create my own because I think what you need is you need some non-negotiables in your life. We live in a society where everything's up in the air. Literally, the, the fad now is everything's negotiable. Anything can be true, whatever you think and want, and we're trying to throw out everything. And I think what we need is we need a few non-negotiables. Like if you were to, they're coming out of slavery, they're going to establish themselves as uh, as a nation, and you got to have some some stuff in stone. What are the things in your life? By the way, here's. Don't stone me, but even if you shaved yours down to five, you took the 10 and you shaved them to five, but you actually knew what they were. So you're going to be mad because I said that, and I said, like, there's 10, Chris, and you're going to take me to court. Oh, but that's a problem. But wouldn't it be better if you actually knew five of them and were really intent on them, and you had them on your refrigerator, and you say, these are my non-negotiables. I think our society would do better with some non-negotiables. Here's, here's, here's the first one I came up with. Take the time. So this is equivalent to have no other gods before me. Instead of just going check, take the time to figure out what is the highest priority in your life, Chris. Now, you'd assume it's like, well, Chris, you're a pastor. It's God, right? Check, 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 check. Well, on paper, it's God. Is anybody with me? On paper, it's God. All right. In public, it's God. I'm putting on a show here. I got one. I mean, that's what it's supposed to be. 
But take the time and figure out, is that really the highest priority in your life? Because here's what's God. See, the whole trick, the whole trick is this. All these gods creep up in your life, and the genius is you just don't call them gods. That's brilliant. I have no other gods. Of course not. Jesus. Yay, go, Jesus. I'll be there at Christmas. Go, Jesus, go. Huh? That's just a name game. That's just semantics. God, ready, is whoever or whatever calls the shots in your life. That's God. You can say whatever you want to say. You know what God is? Whoever, whatever, calls the shots in your life. Somebody calls the shots. There is one and only one, listen carefully, there is one and only one triumphant priority in your life. Every single person in every single seat here and everyone watching online has one and absolutely one triumphant priority. And when there's a conflict, this one wins. Well, should we spend money on this or that? Should we go here or there? Should we do this or do that? What's the highest priority? So I said to myself, take the time and figure out what's the highest priority in your life. Because there can only be one. I typed mine. I never type. Everything else will bow to it. How do you know what's God? Well, what's God is whatever you bow to. It's not what you name. That's a, that's a big part of what Jesus did. All these people around him were religious and they were naming, they had all the right names for things. This is God and we do this. But he was talking about, no, this is what actually you prioritize. Put the ultimate in the highest unrivaled place in your life and let nothing knock it out. There's the hard part. Anybody play King of the Hill growing up? If you, oh, come on, if you grew up like me, in the, you were a child in the 70s, like you played King of the Hill. And yes, it was violent. And that's the way we liked it. <laughs> All right, I'm, I'm kidding, don't, don't get mad at me. But we did like it that way. But you know, what was the best was these kids. Do you guys remember the, the shiny, uh, the winter jackets that like shiny sheen on them? They kind of have come back. And it was, it was like, a, like an army green. Remember the army green ones with the orange diamond stitching inside, interior? Does anybody know these? But the great thing about those was what? The hood. They had the hood with the fur on them. And you could grab a kid by the hood and throw them. I mean, forever. Anyway, I was talking about the Ten Commandments. I think there's something about that in there, but, but my point was you got to do that with the, with the things that will rival God in your life. You got to knock them off. Now, let me just be honest. Let's just talk for a minute. Every single day or every single week, someone's going to come knocking on the door and want, want that place. I want to be on the mountain. I mean, that's what King of the Hill was. It was like, you just had to fight and fight to stay on the top because someone else is going to knock you off. But here's the thing. Every day, every week, another God's going to come up there and want to rival. And you're just going to have to be ferocious about only one can hold that spot. Uh, 
uh, so much to talk about. Like later on, we're going to see that the word jealous is used for God. And, and we, we have to talk about that for quite a while because I think what that does is it makes it seem like God wants to be there because he's like a prima donna and really it feels good being up there. But here's the thing that you need to drive and drill into your psyche, into your soul. It's good for you if God is there. It's good for you if God is there. How did Jesus treat the commandments? Well, one thing that we know for sure is he said this about the Sabbath. I think it's uh, Mark 2, 27. And he said the Sabbath was uh, made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Let's leave that one there for a second because I want you to think about this. The Sabbath would be one of the commandments, and I'm going to extrapolate this and say perhaps this is true of all the commandments. You could argue with me, but you should at least think about if this is true. If the Sabbath was made for you, it goes back to the idea that here, here, here's, a, here's a gift I want to give you. Here's an insight. Here's a secret. It's for you. So if the first commandment is also for you, then it's to your benefit, for your good, that you put God at the unrivaled peak of your life. Other things will come in. You, by the time you get to the New Testament, you read things like, uh, like, like in Philippians where it says your God is your stomach. Or greed becomes an idol. All, by the way, not bad thing to eat, not a bad thing to make money. All good things. And a lot of times, this is really big if you're still listening. A lot of times, good things in your life take the place of God. Not bad things, good things. That's the kicker. It's good. Making money is good. Getting a job is good. Eating is good. I don't know, I don't know. It's not God. One of the subtleties I think that's happening in our culture is we have a lot of good things that are taking the place of God. It takes a really wise person to know the difference. That you can embrace it for all that it is, for the, all that it's good, but, the, but you have the wisdom and the restraint to go, but it's not God. I watch people all the time, they go all in on something and it's good, go all in, but don't put it here. Uh, here's, here's my second one. Uh, it's it, it, do not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth below or in the waters below. And do not bow down to them or worship them. So don't make idols. This is how I, this is how I instead of just going check, like I don't have any idols in my house, I'm good. Don't try to cut God down to a size that fits in your hand or in your mind so you can control him. So I'm not much of an idol carver with a hand, but I can do it here pretty well. You say, well, to control him, what are you, Chris, by, by all means, what are you talking about? I don't try to control God. Really? Like, like my daughter never tries to control me. Pastor, could you pray with us about this? Hmm. 
<laughs> you should hear some of the things I get asked to pray about. Hmm. Could we get God to do this for me? Now, of course, I'm a nice pastor, so I always go, sure. And then when I'm hang up, I go, hmm. Should God do all of our bidding? Should God do all the stuff that we want or we think of? In any way that we cut down God to a size that we can manage him. Now, uh, I have to stop sharing my list because I, I got, haven't got to the sermon yet. What time is it? Um, you know, that's not good. Let me see if I can talk about something different here. Let me just say this. How did Jesus then treat the law? And why does it matter? I think for our generation, it matters a lot. And I really have been thinking so much about the Ten Commandments. You remember what Jesus said? He said, Matthew 5, 17, this is in the Sermon on the Mount, which which we now sort of think and believe was, was Matthew painting Jesus as the new Moses, giving commentary on the Ten Commandments. And in his commentary on the Ten Commandments, he does not discard it. Matthew 5, 17, he goes, I have not come to abolish the law, but to what? Fulfill it. I didn't come here to throw all these away. I came to dive into their deepest meaning. That's my paraphrase. But we can't dive into their deepest meaning if we can't even write them down. If we don't even know them. What they used to do in Jesus' day, which I think is kind of cool. How did Jesus treat the law? Well, first of all, he grew up in a culture that really respected and appreciated it. Um, let's be honest about our culture. I don't think that's... I don't think that's generally the case anymore. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't, I don't think most of the kids that are going off to college these days, they know much of the Bible. Uh, they, it's, it's just not the priority that it was a couple generations ago. I don't think I'm completely wrong about that. So he grew up in a culture where every day or every week you went to the synagogue and you listen to the scriptures being read. And what they would do is you would read through the Torah, the five books of Moses, every year. You'd read through it. Now, I don't know, uh, everyone here, your, your Christian story or your background, but like not long after I went to church, I was given like a Bible reading guide. Anybody ever had one of these? Like how to read through the Bible in a year? Anybody? Uh, that's a completely foreign idea. <laughs> okay, I got a lot of work to do. Uh, and, and so I was handed this, and it was like I was encouraged in, by my church and my pastor to read through the Bible every year. In fact, you know, if you were like a real hot shot, I was, I was given the Robert Murray McShane plan, which was you read through the Bible in the year, and then you read through the New Testament twice. You were like that guy. So I said, I want that one. But I read through it every year. What they, what they used to do in Jesus' day, you didn't have a Bible. You couldn't, afford, you couldn't afford one. 
A copy was a handwritten thing. They had no printing presses. So it was a very, very, very expensive endeavor. And they would keep one copy of a scroll at the local synagogue. And it had this magical treasured feeling like, I just have to imagine like I wasn't there, but you had to think about like, they, they kept it in a special case and then they brought it out and you would take turns reading. And there's so much wisdom there that I think we've lost. Uh, maybe we can address that at another time. Let me, let me read you just a little, a little slice. This is, from, this is from Luke's gospel, Luke 4. He says, uh, it says, Jesus returned to Galilee. He went to Nazareth, verse 16 where he had been brought up, his hometown. This is where Jesus was brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. Sabbath was custom, synagogue was custom. So I'm just laying a little groundwork just so you think about, okay, Jesus as a child, this is how he grew up. Modern Christian equivalent, like they went to church every Sunday. Jewish equivalent, every Sabbath, they went to synagogue. Got it? That was just the routine. That's what they did. Then at the part of the service, part of the routine, if you went, was they read through the Torah. And he stood up to read. So what you want to read in this is, and, and, and I can show you in other places like in Acts, like this is how a service would go. You'd get up and you would read a section of the Torah. And he read, and he read from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. He found the place. So there was a place that was marked, like we stopped here, the next Sabbath we'll pick up and we'll read here. All that to say, they took it very seriously, reading through it every year. Um, the Catholics held on to that tradition pretty well because they have a thing called the, the liturgy. Anybody Catholic or more high church, you get that? You go through it a lot. And I know, I mean, I know because a lot of people have told me like, oh, Chris, it's just atrocious, it's boring, whatever. Okay, but don't, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater because there was some wisdom in like just every year, we're going to go through the story. Every year, we're going to read this. Every year, we're going to, because after a while, you know it. Charlie already knows the story of David and Goliath. She already knows it, inside and out. She already knows the story of Noah's Ark. Just keep going over it and over it and over it. And maybe I'm taking way too much time to explain this one simple point, and that was Jesus knew what was in there, unlike most of us. It was just the culture that he grew up in. I'm not trying to cast judgment or whatever, but he knew what was in there. And then he wrestled with it. I guess all I'm going to advocate today is this, because I've got to be done, is that we know it and then we wrestle with it. You can't personalize these if you don't wrestle with them. Well, what does that mean for me? What does that mean today? How would I do the tenth? How would I do the first commandment in my life today? Instead of just, well, check, I don't do that. Check, I don't do that. I'm, I'm good there. You'll see something that Jesus does. 
thou shalt not murder. And Jesus goes, I gotta wrestle with this. Hmm. But is it good to hate? Is it good to live with anger? And he takes that commandment and he personalizes it to how we live today. The problem is a lot of us live with anger and we just give ourselves a pass, but we miss the spirit of the law. What did Jesus do? He expanded the law to its fullest meaning. Not to heap burdens on us, not to load us down with things that we can't even bear, but to lift us up. Do you know the first sermon series I did at Orchard Grove? It was on the Ten Commandments. It's been a while. And this is the thing that I, this was my, my theme. The commandments are not weights, they're wings. They're wings to lift you higher. You have some non-negotiables in your life, they're to lift you higher. If you have some for your family, they're to lift them higher. But there are times when they feel restrictive. But that's only to lift you higher. What did Jesus do with them? He wrestled with them. I want to commend to you some wrestling. And I want to read one more commandment. And I have a little video to share with you for the dads. So there's this, there's, as you go through the commandments, don't make for yourself an idol. It's the third, or uh, the, uh, the second one. He says, for I am the, God, the, the Lord, a jealous God. And he says, it's punishing the, the, the children for the sin of the fathers. This is, we need to talk about this for a long time. And I don't have any, but to the third and fourth generation, but showing love to a thousand generations. So it's contrasting God's mercy, which is way overabundant and everything. But it makes this little point about Sin being visited to three and four generations. And this is what we want to say. Idolatry is sticky. And, and it'll stick with you. And then it'll stick with your kids. Because whatever you worship, your kids will worship. Not what you tell them to worship, but what you actually worship. They call them idols, because today we say, oh, I idolize, you know, who I idolized when I was a kid? Muhammad Ali and Sugar Ray Leonard. Mm. That was it, posters everywhere. That's what I idolized. Well, and Billy Sims. You're, uh, you're too old, kids, for Billy Sims. But, you, but, that, but then, then what you do is that, then your kids pick up what you idolize, and they what? They just idolize it. That's just how it works. So it just gets passed down. So dads, you get a privilege. You get to take what was handed to you, and you, through God's grace and a lot of grit and prayer and hard work and thinking and self-reflection, you get to turn the water course for generations. That's what you get to do. You say, well, this is what was handed to me, but I'm going to... I'm going to wedge it over here. I have a video to share with you, and then I'm close. That was a classic example of what happens when a family gets decimated. Uh, mom and dad divorced when I was two years old. Both of them came from generational curses of parents that weren't present 
or parents who came from parents who came from parents who didn't know how to parent. And so the product of that was a dad who was fighting the court systems to try to get custody and see his kids, who was often pushed out. Um, and then a mom who was trying to just stay afloat. And um, so that left us exposed to boyfriends that she had, that we lived with, that were not the healthiest relationships for us to be around, that led to poverty, that led to all kinds of abuse and hardship uh, growing up. In my teenage years, I just didn't have a lot of supervision. And what I learned was when a young man does not have validation from a father figure, they're going to find that validation somewhere. But the truth is, there were times where the generational curses of addiction filtered through. What that looked like was uh, dad getting drunk a lot. What it, what it looked like was a dad that had a temper that would inspire him to kick down doors and punch walls and yell and scream and fight and hit. I was fortunate that he did not lay hand on me. Things were challenging. Things were difficult. He certainly did not teach me about the Lord or what it means to be a man. He would teach me how to swing a hammer or small things here and there. And yes, I believe a lot of times he was absolutely doing his best, but there was utter brokenness that had been passed down for generations. And I was on the way to passing that down too. I got caught up in the gang scene. At 17, I had an eight inch hunting knife plunged into my stomach and a screwdriver in my back. I lost nearly half the blood in my body and almost perished. That only made me more angry. I had tried every drug known to man before I left high school, was already an addict and an alcoholic. I was already seeking validation through promiscuity and being with women and giving myself away. That transitioned into my adult life as well. Maybe if I'm a United States Marine and, and I'm a tough guy and I go fight bad guys, and maybe I'm tough enough, maybe I am a man, maybe I have what it takes. Iraq, for me, was a crisis of faith, trying to understand, as a man of God, that's supposed to love others as I love myself, how do I justify what I did and what I saw? And then I come home and we're not supposed to talk about it because real men don't struggle with combat. Real men bury it. That's what the World War II heroes did. And that's why their kids didn't have present fathers most of the time. They were emotionally absent. There's no doubt in my mind that I should be dead or in prison, period. And in the small percent chance that I did survive all that and became a dad, there's no doubt I would have continued that cycle, maybe even exacerbated it made it worse. Thanks be to God. He reached down, he rescued me, and he dusted me off. He's given me spiritual fathers 
Through his word, I've learned what it means to be a dad. I have two of my own that adore me and I adore them. Going on 12 years of marriage, my temper is almost non-existent. And all of those things that I struggled with are in the grave with the old me. I don't struggle with alcohol or drugs anymore. My life is dedicated to the gospel and to serving my king. Yeah, that's good stuff. Huh? We don't have time to talk about it more, but the word that's used a lot that he uses is a curse, a generational curse. And I don't choose that word because I, not to argue it, but, but they're patterns. They're patterns that get handed to you and they get ingrained in you. Because sometimes if you use the word curse, it can make it seem like it's too much out there, you know, avuki theater kind of stuff. This is like, this is what, this is what you were given and this, this, this is what you're probably going to do. I have, a, I have a friend that he was joking with me. He's like, I, I watch, I watch, he has, a, he has a very interesting walk, the way he walks. And he's like, I know it's the other day. My daughter walks exactly how I do. I'm trying to teach her, don't walk like me because I have a dorky looking walk. But it's just what we do. We just pick up the pattern. Which is why these are so important. Because they're laws. They're, some of these things, they, they don't negotiate. They just are. So as we celebrate communion today, I want to do with this, this spirit. Set the right pattern for this generation. You're key. Dads, you're really key. Follow the leadership and the lordship of Jesus Christ, who didn't discard all this, but dove deep into it, so deep that he could bring out the richness of what these all mean for us. Go figure. Jesus talked about anger. <laughs> I don't think anything could be more relevant today. There's anger everywhere. It's promoted. But it's destroying us. It needs to be buried so it's not passed on. Sometimes it needs to be buried multiple times. That's okay. Let it be buried. We're going to give you an opportunity now if you'll come and take the bread and the cup. And you guys can begin in the front. And uh, you'll hold on to it until everyone's received. Then we'll all partake together as a family. If you're with us online, please take a minute to grab something as well. And then we'll all partake together. You can begin. we uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper, we think about so many things. One of the things we think about is forgiveness. So we'll, we'll start here. This is, this is not because I'm here spending time on this. It's not because I need to heap any condemnation on anyone. It's just really not about that. 
or that I, that I do all of this stuff perfectly. That's certainly, clearly not the case. And we're going to talk about forgiveness and grace, which is where it culminates, and, and we have to. But the reason I'm spending a little time on this is the same reason when you, when you talk to your kids and they do something wrong. You know, like the other day, I, I, I chastised my daughter for something that she did that was not good. <laughs> and I was pretty emphatic with her, and she got really, really sad. And sat there with tears welling up in her eyes in the car seat. And you know the only thing that was going through my mind? This is what I thought. I don't know how you, I don't know how you parent, but this is, this is what I'm, I'm making it up as I go along. This is what I did. The whole thing that's going through my mind is how long do I let her sit there? I don't know. Before I turn and say I love you. But it wasn't immediate, and maybe I'm a bad dad. But I felt like it needed to marinate for a minute. Why? So she feels bad and bad about herself? No, come on with that crap. So she'll marinate so she won't do it again and hurt herself and her future by becoming a little spoiled brat. That was my intent. Why are we marinating here at Mount Sinai? Same reason. Yes, yes, it's grace. Yes, it's forgiveness. Yes, God is full. But some stuff has to marinate a little bit. Hmm. And then comes Jesus. Wow. Ultimate. And holding on to justice and mercy. In the Psalms, it says justice and mercy kiss each other. That's the perfect balance of life. That's what we're all striving for. Not all law and not all grace, but justice and mercy coming together. We'll talk about that next. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is broken for you. For you. For our sins and our failures and our brokenness, he was broken the bread. After supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you eat it and you drink it, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again, the cup. Thank God for his grace, huh? Amen. Let's stand together, everybody, will you? Let's commit ourselves. And dads, in this prayer, I want you to be especially bold in your heart. For all the good that's been handed to you, and there's a lot of good, you hold on to that and you hand it to that next generation. And for some of the patterns that need to be adjusted and overcome and reworked, 
in the messiness of our own life, let's stay committed to that. Let's be honest about our idols. Our loving God, we commit ourselves to you today. We commit ourselves to you. To your law, to your non-negotiable, to your way, which brings life to us all. Forgive us when we mess up. Forgive us when we're wrong. Forgive us when we sin. And guide us anew. Guide us afresh. Give us the grace to hand that to the next generation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Happy Sunday, Orchard Grove. We'll see you next week.